Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined in our Brighton studios by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, howdy. Greetings and salutations after uh, a long, hot morning at the St. Patrick's Day breakfast. He won a landslide re-election in a blue state. So in this episode, we're going to be talking with Scott Furson. He is a former press secretary for the late Ted Kennedy and the founder of the Liberty Square Group, which works with campaigns and also private corporate clients. More to the point, he's been a consultant to and remains an advisor of Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton, who is considering seeking the Democratic presidential nomination. But first, Peter, as you mentioned just a moment ago, you and I recently watched the latest incarnation of the South Boston St. Patrick's Day Breakfast. It has a new venue this year, the Raymond Flynn Cruiseport, named for the former mayor. And it has a new host, State Senator Nick Collins, who stepped in for Linda Dorsina Forey after she went to the lucrative private sector. I've seen a lot of these breakfasts, and you have seen a lot more than I have. What did you make of this year's event? I thought it was a real success. I mean, there's an element in a multicultural day. It's not unlike a bar mitzvah where everyone's looking at the host, in this case, Nick Collins, to see how he did. He was, most important of all, he was true to himself. He was light, quick on his feet, witty rather than hilarious. Being hilarious is hard. Being witty can be just as hard, but it, it seems like he's carrying himself. I would say he put his stamp on the breakfast, just the same way that Linda Dosina Forey had put her stamp yeah. on her version. And well before that, Billy Bulger put his stamp. Let me talk for a second about what we're really comparing it to, and that's the, you know, the many years that William Bulger ran the breakfast. Bulger's breakfast was sort of a six-pack in the park with the boyos. The subtext was, yes, we're all important men, but we take our importance lightly. (laughs) Um, Over the years, they got kinder and gentler. I mean, the breakfasts were really, you know, rock'em, sock'em, no holes barred until television came. When you say rock'em, sock'em, no holes barred, do you mean the sort of humor with a nasty edge, or do you mean people getting drunk and then going up on stage, or do you mean both, or maybe something else? Well, but more the humor. These were all public men, largely men. They, Many people might have had one or two too many, but this was not the parade. But no, the humor could be very biting, very on target. You know, now it's pretty civilized. So... Is it fair to say, and I'm... But that, in a way, isn't the point. I think what The Breakfast is about is it's a reflection of community, of the political community. And if I could jump back to Nick Collins, this was a breakfast. Nick Collins' breakfast was very much about the city of Boston and the, the Boston Beacon Hill access, you know, the traffic between City Hall and the State House. There was a a rather impressive show of Boston City Councilors who were there. There were a number of state senators. I mean, his own, you know, the men and women he serves with in the state Senate, most important of all, his boss, Senate President Spilka, was there. In contrast with former state Senate President Stan Rosenberg, who 
tended to, I don't think he showed up, did he, when he gave those sort of weird testimonials? No, he, about... he was there, but uh, I'll tell you, that it was a different dynamic. Um, Linda Dorsina Fori had been somewhat of a favorite of DeLeo and somewhat of a f- favorite of the former Senate president. I mean, it was interesting that Speaker DeLeo wasn't there this year. Now, he had a previous date in Florida, but I think that in I don't read anything into it other than the fact that relations between the House and the Senate are cool. Hmm. When one of his former pupils, if you will, was running it, he would have been there. It, it's much I ado. hadn't even thought of that as a, an explanation. Yeah. But that totally makes and sense. And by the way, he could have had, had been visiting family in Florida. When you say that the humor used to be more cutting, uh, the most cutting joke, at least to my mind, at the breakfast this year involved... Andrea Campbell, the president of the Boston City Council, and her take on big things that Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has tried to accomplish, uh, which he's either failed to accomplish or have turned out not to be quite as great as the mayor thought they would be. Let's take a listen. And it was such a crazy experience driving here today. But thankfully, our mayor, Marty Walsh, has left a series of landmarks that helped me get my bearings. Let me read you my directions, courtesy of Google Maps. First, take a right at the Olympic Stadium in Wyatt Circle. Just make sure you don't confuse it with the MLS Soccer Stadium on Frontage Road. Then continue down the road until you reach GE's shiny new headquarters. And if you get to Amazon's HQ2, you've gone way too far, way too far. So you got to turn around, drive back, go by the Seaport's IndyCar track for about a quarter of a mile. And voila, you're here. You're here. So is that more in line with the kind of jokes that you recall hearing back in the day when Billy Bulger was hosting? Yes, but she spoke with a note of affection in her voice that that I believe was sincere. Imagine remarks like that uttered with complete contempt <laughs> and scorn. And that was more the listen, I thought Campbell was very successful. Maybe next to Nick Collins, the the morning was hers. Unfortunately, she came on later in the breakfast and and people were a little worn out, but she was very, very good. I got to ask you, I remember seeing this, I think for the first time when I was working for you at the Boston Phoenix. And as someone who grew up in the Midwest, you know, I'd lived in Boston for a few years at that point, but this whole world was still new to me. And I remember thinking at the outset, oh, this is such a, a cool local ritual, how idiosyncratic, how authentic. And then within a year or two, I really lost my desire to see another one. Now, that's ebbed and flowed over the years. I was excited to see, for example, when Linda Dorsina Fori took over, first woman, first person of color. This first year, person from Dorchester. First person from Dorchester. To, to run the yeah. South Boston event, yeah. But I got to ask you, as successful as Nick Collins was this year, and I, I agree with you, I thought Nick Collins was very funny. He had kind of a letterman-esque, understated, absurdist uh, delivery, (laughs) which I I really enjoyed. I got to ask you about the necessity of this thing as an ongoing political ritual. I get that that it's a template that we see the sort of realities of Massachusetts and Boston politics projected onto every year. But do you think that this still needs to exist uh, or has its time kind of come and gone? Well, it never needed to exist. 
I mean, at first, it was really very much a civic celebration, focused almost entirely on Evacuation Day. The only one who really mentioned Evacuation Day in a meaningful way was Governor Charlie Baker, who just couldn't help being a Boy Scout. I also think he had his tongue in cheek, and while everyone else was going to be joking, he, the stalwart Republican, was going to deliver a civic message. But none of these events have to take place. I think one of the takeaways from this week's messages is that, you know, Basically, for all the nasty headlines and infighting we read about, the people on Beacon Hill and City Hall more or less like each other. I feel like an anthropologist going in there because the the times have changed so much that the events are different. But, you know, at one point I saw Michelle Wu standing on the dais there. And, you know, I'm thinking 25, 30 years ago, the thought of an Asian woman who went to Harvard Law School being a Boston city councilor and standing up there would just not have entered your mind. So it's a reflection on how Boston changes. I'm actually thinking about making a, uh, I guess, live to tape commitment here as we talk to go to next year's breakfast. Is that going too far? For you and I to say, okay, we'll it's not be there going again. too far for you. It's going too far for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, look, uh, our mutual friend Gin Um, I saw her. Uh, you talk about going too far. I, I saw a picture of him in his living room on, on Twitter, actually watching the Don thing on television. You, you know, that, that is going above that, and beyond that, the call. That yeah. is a cry for professional help. All right. With that, it's time to turn to Scott Furson. He is, as I mentioned earlier, a former Ted Kennedy aide and the founder of the Liberty Square Group. He's also the Democratic political consultant who helped Seth Moulton beat incumbent Congressman John Tierney back in 2014. And he's currently advising Moulton as he weighs a presidential bid. Scott, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So as we talk, Congressman Moulton is in the midst of this pseudo campaign swing that's taking him to New Hampshire, right? And I believe South Carolina and Iowa. Uh, are you going to be with him at any of these destinations? No. And, and just to clarify, I mean, it's a, I was a paid consultant in 2014. I've been an advisor uh, to Seth since then. And I have been chatting with him about doing this. And I, you know, the day after the last uh, election, and I think it's been reported, I called him and urged him to run for president. So you won't be with him at any of these times? No, I won't be with him. Okay. Are you hearing back from him uh, when you are advising someone as as you are? Do they, you know, give you a call after the event in South Carolina wraps up and say, okay, here's how it went. Here's what was good. Here's what was bad. It's usually with the congressman. I I see what the coverage is and then make my comments and he's always quick to to respond to that. So that's usually how we, uh, we go back and forth. You know, I, I think this is a smart thing to do. He hasn't asked my advice about doing it, but the best way to know whether you uh, want to want to take this step is to actually go to these states and talk to people. Okay, so you're not getting reports no. back in real time. No. Okay, so I can't ask you how the campaign swing has been going. I think I can ask you though, how much time does he actually have to make this decision? I know a lot of coverage of the presidential campaign so far has pointed out how early it is, but. The Democratic field is really crowded and it is getting later rather than earlier. So what's a realistic timetable for him, do you think? I think he's got to get in in the next two weeks if he's going to do it because, you know, ultimately there's no 
calendar reason to get in this early. But, you know, people are starting to kick the tires on on candidates. And a couple of the ones I would put in the same category as Seth, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Eric Swalwell from California. You know, you could argue Beto a little bit, although I think it's it's a little different and off point. You know, they're starting to get traction and people are, and frankly, I, I think uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg is a very attractive candidate too. So as those people start to fill their rosters with uh, supporters, you know, increasingly, the longer you wait, the fewer there are. And you mentioned Buttigieg. He, among other things, is a veteran like Congressman mm-hmm. Walton. So if people are attracted to a candidate like that and he's been out there campaigning, they may be thinking of him as the candidate who's a veteran. Well, exactly right. Tries to come to a decision. Yeah. And he speaks Swedish. Norwegian. It's Norwegian. Norwegian. I stand corrected. he learned only <laughs> so he could read a book, not in Isn't the that the same thing, though, Swedish in translation? Well, I don't, know. I don't know about that. I think a lot of people will be enraged to hear you say that. <laughs> Peter Kadzis. Well, just how would Congressman Moulton deal with, you know, basically Beethomania? Uh, there's a story in Politico the day we record saying that he's off to a stumbling start. He definitely is off to a stumbling start. I'm also not so sure that matters because so much of his appeal is as an authentic person. As captured in photos by Annie Leibovitz. Yeah. Yeah. He is a a contemporary of sorts who, you know, warrants an hour on MSNBC, gets in Vanity Fair. And listen, Congressman Moulton's not too shabby in the publicity department, but how does he just stack up? against something like that. Well, I think that's, I actually think that's an advantage for for Seth in this way. And I'll tell you this story about him from the 14 race. I mean, we were, our poll had us down by 56 points in March, six months before the election when he beat John Tierney by 10 points. Nobody was with Seth. Nobody was with us. And he was at an event in Lynn and went up to a guy with a Tierney button on and said, hi, I'm Seth Moulton. You know, what can I do to earn your support? And the guy said, you know, do you not see the Tierney button on my shirt? And, uh, you know, Seth went at him for a little bit and finally stopped him. He got frustrated. He said, what is it about I'm with John Tierney, don't you understand? And Seth said, what is it about I want to earn your support, don't you understand? And when you're talking about a race like this, I know it's we're off to the races and everything's happening like this. But when you're in Iowa, the, you know, as Seth said, this wouldn't be the toughest thing he's done in his life. It's true. And if he goes with that kind of, I'm going to plug away at this thing and convince every Iowan one by one <laughs> that they're going to be with me, I think ultimately in a state like Iowa or New Hampshire, the early states, that substantive understanding of it, the not flashy part of it, is a way to, to go at the beta mania. That's a good answer. Here's why I, I'm, I'm not totally convinced. Tanny was damaged goods. You know, I never predicted that Moulton was going to win, but I wasn't at all surprised. I mean, Tanny had hung on as long as he did that the Republicans weren't able to field a viable candidate against me, against him, you know, just boggles my mind. We should mention his wife had some legal problems. Her family had some legal problems. The congressman, former congressman, Tierney, wasn't implicated in this, but it was not good to be associated with in the heat of a campaign. And by the way, I'm not taking anything away from Moulton's campaign other than the the tactile nature of grassroots campaigning in places like Iowa or New Hampshire. I'm just not sure it's how transferable that is. And in any case, he's got to decide whether he's going to run or not. Right. If I were putting money on it, I would think he does run the... Um... Oh, David Bernstein, our columnist, predicted talking to people 
close to molten <laughs> that right, he would right. be running. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm encouraging. I, I um, don't know what I'll be doing in the in the race, but the, um, you know, I think that this is exactly who Seth is. It's the that type of, uh, A, there's few people who are going to be running who are as smart as he is. I almost think that, you know, I, I get this kind of Beto and making the emotional attachment or others, Joe Biden and others. Seth is, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, he's more Nixonian in this way that not a natural candidate, if you will, in that same mold, but incredibly effective because uh, he's just going to, he is going, he is so smart, he's going to figure it out. And, um, you know, he hadn't run for anything when he ran for Congress and um, want to prepare, prepare, prepare. And then when he would say, we're going, um, and he might think if he could prepare more, he would do that. But when he was out there, he absorbed information. He absorbed lessons. And you, you start out the first couple of weeks, I think even Beto, having run and had so much attention, but stepping up in this way, I think he has kind of stumbled out of the gate a little bit, as a lot of candidates do. Seth self-corrects faster than anyone I've seen. When you say he is Nixonian, and just to reiterate, I get that you didn't mean it as a, as a pejorative, but is it fair to say, maybe to paraphrase what you just said, and, and, and say that as you see it, campaigning for him is more of an intellectual exercise than an exercise of operating from the gut? Is that, is that accurate? Does that oh, yeah. What you're trying yeah. To say? It's, okay. it's nine, 90% head. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that fits something. I, I saw him in Amesbury when he was facing a lot of backlash for his opposition to Speaker Pelosi. And I was struck by the fact, you know, he was standing up there in front of a crowd, taking some very tough, critical questions. He didn't look, and I think I'm, I'm saying this just because it jibes with the observation you offered. He didn't look like someone for whom it was natural to be standing in front of a crowd like that, and maybe if the questioning had been friendlier, if the context had been different, you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten the feeling I did. But I felt like I was watching him work to be up there, interacting with all these voters, and yet he was doing it. Well, there are some people, you get the impression that, you know, Beto O'Rourke would like nothing better than to hop on a counter and talk. Uh, the more people watching, the better. And if there aren't people around to watch him hop on a counter, maybe he'll do it at home just for the hell of it and talk to his wife and kids. I didn't get that vibe watching Congressman Bolton. Right. He doesn't sort of feed off a crowd in that way. He feeds off of the intellectual back and forth. And in that way, he he does adjust. I mean, I you know, it's, it's hard when you're a congressman for one district, no matter where you are in the country, to then go out and understand the issues in Iowa. Mike Dukakis, very intellectual, but asking about, you know, diversifying into Belgian endive and all this type of stuff. And Seth will be fascinated by that. I mean, I think people will be impressed when he's in South Carolina or Iowa or these states that he's in now, where after a couple of visits, he's actually knows enough about what they're going through to be able to talk to them about it. Let's compare and contrast with some of the other candidates. Beto seems to be running an ego-driven campaign that let Beto be Beto. We've got Cory Booker channeling Obama 2.0 in the more substantive way, we have um, Elizabeth Warren, who is decrying corporate influence and championing more economic equality for Americans. What do you imagine Moulton's theme will be? You know, he, he's been talking about national security. And this is where I, I think he, you know, is substantive in this way that's different because, of course, 
most political consultants on the Democratic side will say it's a really horrible uh, thing to run on, that ultimately in the early states particularly, national security isn't going to be the thing that's going to uh, light anyone's fire um, in terms of, of voting. But he's not wrong. You know, that actually is probably the most important thing facing this, facing this country with this president administration. So if he can, you know, where I don't think he's thinking calculatedly about this, I certainly don't think he was in taking on Nancy Pelosi. I don't think there was a political calculation in that. He just believed it was time for a generational change in the House. I don't think he was wrong uh, in that. I think his timing might have been wrong. And here I think saying, I'm going to be the leader on what the Democratic Party platform should be on national security in contrast to what the Trump administration and, frankly, the Obama administration had some issues with, uh, with the Obama administration um, uh, stances and a lot of things, is will make him a leader of the party as we move into 2020 on that. Is that enough to win a nomination? I'm skeptical about that right now. When you talk about him genuinely believing it was time for a generational change when he opposed Nancy Pelosi returning as speaker, I know it's really easy to sit on the outside, as Peter and I and others do, and question the decisions that, that people make under a microscope. But I was struck with that whole episode at how much he seemed to have misread the room, the room being the Democratic Party in 2019, uh, because we were coming off this election where women flex their muscle at the polls to a great extent, where there was this influx of, of uh, female lawmakers who, I think, used their gender as a, a positive attribute, Ayanna Presley, for example, making the case that representation matters, and they were rewarded for doing it. And then you've got your guy coming around and saying, okay, well, it's time to uh, have a generational change, and that's why this woman, who is now poised to return to power, uh, should be you know, exiting and, and making way for someone else. And I mentioned being at that event in Amesbury where he got tough questions. A lot of people, not pundits, but a lot of rank and file Democrats, men and women, were really irked by the stance that he'd taken. As you know, there's been a, a threat to primary him the next time he seeks reelection. Does that perhaps highlight the problem of approaching politics as an intellectual exercise rather than operating from gut instincts, which obviously could steer you wrong on some occasions, but uh, if you have a good gut, it might keep you from getting into trouble And in the way that I would argue he got into trouble taking on Pelosi. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think, and this is where he's probably not Nixonian and that uh, I think Nixon was calculating enough to be able to understand how to read a room pretty pretty well. Seth does not. Uh, no. And I think he misread that room, if you will. I mean, he was, as I say, he was not, I don't think, wrong but she won. And so that overrode uh, the fact of you had to kick the generational change uh, down the road a little bit because of the facts had changed in the interim from two years ago. But um, I, I would be very surprised. So not being able to read a room is one thing. Not being able to read the same room a couple of times is, um, is fatal, I think. And Seth, um, and I, as I say, absorbs lessons so quickly that I'm surprised if he makes the same mistake twice. One more question about uh, the Pelosi affair and how it connects to, to this interest in a presidential run. We have a colleague who is convinced that Seth Moulton isn't going to run for president, that he knows he's not going to run for president, and that this dalliance he's having with a possible presidential bid is an attempt to change the subject of the conversation when it comes to Seth Moulton. Now he's the guy who's thinking about getting into the Democratic field as opposed to the guy who tried and failed to, to take on Nancy Pelosi. Is there anything to that? Um, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, again, for a couple of reasons. One is 
I, I don't think that from the conversations I've had, he may not run for president. But I, I always think that, that anyone who's kind of looking at it is sort of in until they're not. You know, there's a bunch of people that are still out there, my, uh, Bennett, uh, Swalwell, California, others, Joe Biden. You know, at some point they may there may be that tipping point in the same way that Beto was brushing his teeth and that was a tipping point to run. I may be brushing my teeth and decide I don't want to run. I put good money on him uh, running for president. And again, I don't – and the other reason is I don't think he's calculated in that way, that he's sort of thinking – I'm going to faint this way to go this way. He's pretty straight at you. That's just his character. Let me ask, has his sensibility when it comes to all things political, taking on John Tierney when, as you mentioned, even though he was damaged goods, I think almost no one expected an incumbent Democrat to be unseated. And Tierney had been in office, what, like 18, 19 years? It was a really long time anyway trying to take on Nancy Pelosi, now looking at getting into this mega crowded presidential field. To what extent does his experience as a combat veteran who has faced, yeah, I say this is someone who hasn't served in the military, doesn't have any friends or family who've served in the military, uh, he's faced death in the course of doing his job on a daily basis. Do you think that makes him less risk averse than politicians who don't have that experience? Uh, no, I'm, I actually think it, I don't know that he was risky when he was there uh, from what I know about his his tours. Um, and reading the citations, bronze medal citations. It does make you a different, I don't know, Mayor Buttigieg or other people who've uh, met John McCain, but, you know, people who've, politicians who have had that kind of service. I mean, I think it's probably harder for Seth to articulate why, but he understands that those experiences make you a different person when you're in this role. The first time we met him to talk about running for office, it's not so much that he would take that risk, it struck me that there were very few people where an opportunity like that would be presented to you. Hi, are you interested in running for Congress? We think that there's a vulnerable congressman and you happen to live in his district. I, I, I think most people would say, really nice meeting you. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. And Seth does not do that. So I think the you're going to run for president might look like a risky move if you wanted to have a future in this. And I don't think Seth thinks about that at all. If he does get in, and he's asked in a CNN town hall or wherever, all right, what's your signature legislative achievement or achievements in your years in Congress? What's the answer going to be? He's got a number of uh, bills that have been signed into law on veterans issues and other things. He's a big proponent of, um, of high-speed rail and other, other stuff. He's innovative. He's got a different way of sort of thinking about problems, and that's, it's worked its way into legislation. So I'm confident he'll be able to answer that question. Peter Kadzis, I think you get the last question. If you want it, Anything that we should run by Scott before we let him take off? What's the different approach or the, the different frame of mind? I'd be surprised if he sort of talks about the need to get money out of politics, knowing that that's a touch point for Democrats, but not actually a solvable problem. I don't think he's in it just for the ego, although any politician has a healthy ego. He's actually in it to make a difference and to make progress in that progressive kind of way of making progress. And I think if he sat and looked at the last two years of his tenure in Congress or the next two years and felt he hadn't accomplished anything or moved the ball forward, he would be looking for another challenge. Um, so I think that's the difference. And Seth is very much a I'm going to get things done kind of guy. With that, it is time to wrap up this installment of The Scrum. Scott Furson, thank you for joining us and good luck over the next few weeks. I assume you'll be talking with Seth Moulton as he tries to come to a decision. I will be, yes. yep. All right. 
Well, good luck, whatever you guys end up deciding. Thank you. Peter Kazis, I will see you upstairs. Yep. And Scott, thanks a lot for coming by. Thank you. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum. If you haven't already, you can find us at Apple Podcasts and a whole bunch of other places. We'd also love to hear from you with any feedback, positive or negative. You can reach us at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter is at Kansas. Our engineer was John Parker. We got production help from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Whack-fall.